In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have another uh, day focusing on some of the most recent proposals for reforms and updates with regard to racism in the United States. Um, tied into that, but slightly separately, we'll be having, starting off with a discussion about Trump um, and his fascist tendencies quickly growing into fascist practices. Um Then we'll move on to a discussion of police and police reform. And then we'll close it out by discussing some other news, things that may have fallen through the cracks. All right, Michael, let's do it. So it seems to me that we are starting to talk less and less about COVID-19, which is actually kind of disturbing that a global pandemic is no longer the biggest news in the United Mm. States. Yes, A global pandemic that, as of tonight, has 7.3 million cases worldwide with 413,000 deaths. In the United States, we've got 2.1 million cases, and we're now up to 114,000 deaths. Uh, So, yeah, somehow that is the second most important thing. And I wouldn't be surprised if Trump was cool with that. Yeah. So make sure that you are still maintaining social distancing as much as you can, Uh, especially if you go out to protest, do what you can to make Mm -hmm. sure that you're protecting yourself, protecting other people. Uh, And if it is possible, make sure to stay home as much as possible uh, to prevent the spread of the disease. It is still going on. It is still a big deal. We are still in a pandemic just because there's a lot of other things happening doesn't mean that we can't also remember that we need to protect ourselves yeah totally and yeah and and don't forget that like activism is a multifaceted set of activities one one you know simile has been comparing it to like multiple lanes in a highway it's like you can go out and protest but you can also donate and learn and have hard discussions and you know be active on social media and support protests from afar Um, All of these things are valuable. So don't feel like if you are in a risky situation, like you have to go out and risk your life or the lives of your loved ones um, in a protest necessarily. That being said, this is a very important time in our nation's history and one where we actually might be able to make a tremendous amount of difference. And we've seen a lot of difference made by these protests so far. So if you feel comfortable with it, definitely get out there. Absolutely. So today we're going to get started by talking about some of the fascist tendencies of the Trump administration. And as Michael alluded to, how those tendencies have started turning into practices. So in our last podcast, we ended briefly by talking about what happened in Lafayette Park when a bunch of people were protesting and then they were randomly tear gassed Mm -hmm. and everyone was looking around to figure out what was going on. And it turns out what was happening was president Trump was going to the St. John's church to do a photo op awkwardly holding a Bible. 
And this was right after he had done a press conference, which, by the way, while you were watching the press conference, you could actually hear flashbangs in the background, where mm -hmm. he called himself a friend to peaceful protesters. Mm -hmm. Now, later, he claimed that he had no idea uh, what was happening, that uh, he had no idea that they had been tear gassed or anything like that. Um he also claims that uh, the people there were being violent, which they weren't. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Bill Barr, the attorney general, also claimed that they were doing that specifically to make sure that they were protecting the president, that they were that it was completely justified because uh, of all the violent protesters, which you yeah. can watch the video of what happened. It is a bunch of people peacefully protesting and then mm -hmm. being attacked violently by the police so that the president could do a photo op. Yeah. If you don't believe the protesters, you know, believe the media. If you don't believe the media, I have friends who were actually there in the crowd of people who can attest to the fact that it was peaceful. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they this just tremendous outpouring of violence from the police. And, uh, and like, even if this was just a response in order to try to clear the the square in order for Trump to safely walk across. Like that would be severe negligence on the side of Trump and his administration, right? Like he, he did not communicate his plan to go across. So giving, providing, you know, the people controlling the crowd in Lafayette square to safely move people away. Perhaps if he'd given some notice, they actually would have been able to, you know, clear the way for him to safely move across. But rather than doing that, you know, he, he surprises his staff and his aides and just starts to walk across or like announced it a few minutes ahead of time. And these police, in the best case scenario, have to try to clear thousands of people who are peacefully protesting in, you know, a few minutes. You know, it was set up to be poorly handled. And, and, and that is like the big excuse of all of this stuff. It's like, well, you know, we just didn't have any other options. And it's like, sorry, guys, I think you spent that one a few too many times, especially when right before this, President Trump is saying things like, you know, um, if a city or state refuses to take actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the U.S. military and quickly resolve the problem. Talking about mobilizing, quote, thousands and thousands of heavily armed military to stop protests. He's, he's specifically, like, he's calling himself an ally of peaceful protesters, and then, to Nathan's point, like, then immediately gassing a bunch of people in, like, a bunch of peaceful protesters right outside of where he's speaking. But the thing is, like, all he wants to do is show force, and he knows that he can try to paint the picture of violence and, you know, try to get away, get away with it. Yeah. So one thing that's important to make sure that we're clear about is a lot of people are arguing, oh no, Trump is not against the peaceful protesters. He's against the violent protesters. And if he's arguing for deploying the military, he's only doing that to go after the violent protesters. If you think that's true, I don't even know what to say because he demonstrated right after he had argued for that what he means by who the people that are acting disorderly. It was the peaceful yeah. protesters. So you yeah. think that police officers and national guard who their job is actually to maintain order in our country. Mm -hmm. You think that if they can't distinguish between peaceful protesters 
and violent protesters, you think that the military, who, by the way, is trained not to maintain order in the homeland, but to be in a hostile environment and to kill, you think that they can distinguish that? No, what's mm -hmm. going to happen is you are going to have civilians being killed by their own military. Yeah. This is escalations blatantly. of violence. Exactly. Escalations of violence. When Trump argued for deploying the military, in effect, he was arguing against the First Amendment. He was mm -hmm. arguing against freedom of speech. He was arguing against freedom to assembly. And he was enforcing that through threats of violence. So don't tell me that yeah. this is only about taking out, this is only about uh, preventing rioters, preventing looters. We've already, we know that that is actually a small number of people and it's been becoming, it's actually been becoming significantly a smaller amount of people as the week has gone on, mm -hmm. as the protests have become more organized and more peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to talk about like, okay, so if you want to talk about violence, like, you know, big surprise that spontaneous gatherings of thousands of people don't have 100% control over the people that are, you know, on their fringes and potentially standing next to heavily armed, like militarized police and military. So like, okay, sometimes like maybe Thurman throws a water bottle. Literally, they're talking about throwing water bottles. Okay, great. Let's gas them. It's like, yeah. You, you you have protective gear for a reason. And I'm not saying that the police should just stand by and like take it, but I'm I'm talking just, just simply about proportionate response. Like if you have someone like we've seen go and look online, you've seen videos of like like people criticize the police officer just verbally, and the police officers walk up and either mace them or like handcuff them. They'll they'll approach, you know, crowds of people literally standing still and like shoot tear gas at them. And it's just, it's, it's just astounding. And okay, maybe, you know, we could give Trump the benefit of the doubt and say, he's not the one like going and telling police stations to, to arm them, like arm themselves and then go fight peaceful protesters. But he's setting that tone out. He's, he's like specifically, you know, using that language and using that tone. And he's not condemning these actions in any way. And, you know, I've heard a lot of like, I've heard a lot of people try to try to like split hairs on this police violence. Like one of the things I've, I've been hearing recently is, well, actually, they didn't use tear gas at Lafayette Square. And because the actual park police came out and said, quote, officers employed the use of smoke canisters and pepper balls. USPP officers and other assisting law enforcement partners did not use tear gas or OC scat shells to close the area at Lafayette Park which was a total lie. They like we we literally found scat shells on the ground and later the park police came and back and retracted the statement and said that it was wrong for them to have put it out. So like and yes, it's true that they didn't use the most harmful form of tear gas out there. It's like a it's an organic compound that, you know, is like an irritant to the eyes and to and causes like pain and, you know, um tearing and things like that. But like just because these police officers aren't out there like using the most harmful forms of suppression and just because they're not out there like intentionally killing people doesn't mean this stuff isn't really harmful. Like rubber bullets, for example, um, 
So there are lots of kinds of rubber bullets, but they belong to a category of weapon called a kinetic impact projectile. And a study in 2017, which reviewed 25 years of international data regarding death, injuries, and permanent disabilities from rubber bullets, found that when these articles are used, 3% of those struck by um, these KIPs died of the injury, and 15.5% suffered permanent injuries. And we know at least one journalist who has lost vision in one of her eyes because of a rubber bullet. Flashbangs. Flashbangs are like used on my friends, people I know, and peaceful protesters at Lafayette Park can cause like permanent hearing loss. They, they like let out this extremely loud bang that's louder than a jet engine. Like the idea that just because these aren't lethal measures, that they're not extremely disproportionate uses of force to control these crowds is insane. And it's it's like it's a total misinformation campaign um, to downplay the response of these police officers to call these to like refer to these things as, as not that bad. Yeah. One thing I was actually talking to my wife about uh, earlier to sort of give you all a frame of reference. So rubber bullets were not designed to be shot point blank at somebody like that can kill someone that can severely injure them. So I want you to think of rubber bullets and tear gas the same way we think about fire hoses. When we think about the civil rights protests in the 60s, we've seen the images of black protesters being shot at by fire hoses. You need to think of it the same way, because yeah, fire hoses are not technically as lethal as uh, bullets, obviously, but they still cause an excessive amount of damage and they're employed on peaceful protesters. We looked at it back then. We looked at fire hoses on unarmed protesters back then. And we said, that's wrong. That is, that is a massive abuse of authority. We cannot allow that to happen. This is the same damn thing. It's just different methods. So all of this started because of police using an excessive amount of force. And your solution is more force? So he, he, here's, the, here's the thing. This is, this is another important point to make that I kind of made last week as well. There's no equivalence between rioters and police officers. Now, mm-hmm. rioters, we have condemned them on this podcast. We do not believe in violence as a form of protest. We have said that. We've been very clear about that. But there's no equivalence between rioters who are spontaneous acts by regular civilians and police officers who are supposed to be organized authority figures that are there to enforce the law. Mm -hmm. You cannot, by definition, in a republic, you cannot break the law in order to restore law and order. Mm-hmm. That is an oxymoron. That is a paradox. And we make, we, we, we do the opposite of what makes sense in, in this rhetoric about police officers and rioters. We, we make excuses for our police officers saying that they have a really hard job, which they do. But 
to your point, they are the vanguards of justice on the streets of our society. Like, it is a, it is a defect, not a feature of our police that they make bad choices sometimes. And we shouldn't just let them off the hook. It is a defect, not a feature, that we have police doing the wrong job sometimes and are like over-militarized, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. But the fact is that like making excuses that enable the use of excessive force without repercussions is stepping away from justice and the things that we deserve to expect from our government. But unfortunately, the trend of defaulting to violence and control in the name of justice and law and order is a worrying one that we've seen just getting more intense as as this president who is a, a weak bully strong man uh, trying to support his ego by you know becoming some kind of dictator over this nation yeah one thing that i learned recently that i read recently that gave me chills mm-hmm. is that trump actually told us who he was in the 90s he told us what type of president he was going to be in the 90s and i think that this is extremely relevant today so I'm sure everybody has heard of Tiananmen Square. So on June 4th, 1989, after several weeks of pro-democracy and pro-reform protests, uh, government troops went into Tiananmen Square, and this was in Beijing, and they shot at the unarmed demonstrators, and they killed hundreds and potentially even thousands of protesters. Mm -hmm. This is where we get that famous image of the guy standing in front of the tanks. So Trump was actually being interviewed by Playboy magazine. Good choice. Yeah, in March uh, 1990. And he was asked about it. And he said, and if, if this quotation does not disturb you, then you're a fascist. I mean, there's no way of saying, there's no other way of saying it. You are a fascist. If you are comfortable with this, you are a fascist. Quote, when the students poured into Tiananmen Square, the Chinese government almost blew it. Then they were vicious, they were horrible, but they put it down with strength. That shows you the power of strength. Our country is right now perceived as weak, as being spit on by the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So Trump looked at the that picture of the man standing in front of those tanks, and he was on the tank side. He said that it was okay, it was good, it was a show of strength for the military to kill hundreds and potentially thousands of unarmed people. Killing unarmed civilians, a government killing their own civilians unarmed, that's not strength, that's cowardice. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he is now calling for bringing in the troops to quell these protests, 
I don't give a damn if he's claiming that, oh, it's just it's just going to be the violent ones that are going to that are going to um, be taken out by the military. Bull. Yeah. That is a bunch of bull. He told us who he is. We got to believe him. Yeah. And even if it were like even if it literally were just the violent ones, like, OK, so a person breaks a shop window. So you snipe him like in what world? Does that seem just? Why does it? Why does it? Why is it because all of a sudden there are thousands of people around and one person breaks a shop window, that all of a sudden escalates their punishment to the death penalty? It yeah. it doesn't make any sense. But the fact is that, you know, he he's talking about law and order, but what he means is like strength and the status quo. Like he he was talking in the rose garden about bragging about being a law and order president. But law and order right now in the United States means the murder of innocent people and disproportionately the murder of black people by the law. Remember, black people make up 13% of the country and almost a quarter of all killings by police. Yeah. So, so on its own, these would be really worrying facts. But... Unfortunately, they they don't exist in a vacuum. So one of the one of the really like common narratives that's being pushed by the right um, in the media and by Trump and by Trump surrogates is that these violent protests are the work of Antifa, and so we can now say that we're on the side of peaceful protesters because they're not a violent domestic terror organization, but all of the acts of violence, any, any negative action taken by protesters is the work of Antifa, which you know Trump has tried to label as a domestic terror organization. Basically trying to both sides the issue of racism. It's like, it's like Charlottesville... In, in inverse on steroids it's like by by trying to scapegoat an not even an organization like a point of view like antifa is not like a well-organized machine it's like it stands for anti-fascist yeah my 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 favorite quote is about this is from the washington post it's quote if trump is against anti-fascists then what is he for? Yeah. So one thing that's important to say about Antifa is that it's not one big organization with a bunch of leaders. It is a disorganized idea. It is decentralized groups of autonomous activists. So the one thing that these autonomous groups that call themselves Antifa are like gather behind is the idea that uh, violence against a system that is oppressive is by its very nature self-defense. Now, I, I don't agree with them. I don't agree with the concept of violence as a means of protest, but that's not a unified idea. And in fact, a lot of people that... Uh, self-described themselves as being members of Antifa have actually argued that they view violence as being a last resort. Mm -hmm. And 
what that means is that a person can be a member of Antifa, but never commit any violence. So if you are declaring this group as a terrorist organization, when it is not actually an organization, mm -hmm. you are basically just giving yourselves license to treat anybody that protests against fascism as being a terrorist. Yeah. Yeah, and even looking beyond the absurdity of defining Antifa as a domestic terror organization before defining the KKK as a domestic terror organization, your point is exactly right. It's like, if you ask someone how to identify someone as Antifa, it is their response is that it is by their actions. It is by their activity against fascism, which is exactly your point. Like any, t and, and, and it's the rhetoric that we're seeing. It's like any action that these, that protesters are taking that is in any way more than, you know, waving a sign and chanting is part of Antifa. And if you start, if you, if like, and by demonizing that group, by demonizing the ideology, scapegoating them and making that something to be afraid of, that is like a common precursor to a fascist ideology. Like by taking a group of people and, you know, unjustly designating them as a public enemy, creating fear campaigns around this, this group of people, you enable a rallying cry in proposed self-defense that, you know, leads to all kinds of extreme actions. Like on this podcast, we have talked about, you know, the, case, the circumstances under which a government is able to take actions um, which would normally be outside of the scope of its, of its just ability. So specifically, we were talking about in the case of a pandemic. But the problem is when you synthesize one of those, when you make it up instead of you know, responding to an actual crisis, you can easily get to a government which is totally out of control and not controllable which is the fear of, of libertarians when they talk about government overreach, right? And like when you're talking about cases where, you know, people are exhibiting tendencies and the warning signs of a descent into, you know, extreme government control, like limiting free speech, like using the military against civilians, like scapegoating their own citizens and subgroups of people, it starts to get really, really worrying. There's already been some evidence that this is part of Trump's plan to label people who are dissenting as just being Antifa and therefore a terrorist. Just this morning, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the video of uh, the 75-year-old man who was pushed to the ground by police officers and then left to and then bleed left. out of his, his skull. You can see him bleeding in the video, and they just, they just leave him. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that video. So just this morning, Trump tweeted about it. He said, quote, Buffalo protester shoved by the police could be an Antifa provocateur. 75-year-old Martin Gugino 
was pushed away after appearing to scan police communications in order to black out the equipment. At OANN, I watched, he fell harder than was pushed, was aiming scanner, could be set up. Oh my God. He fell harder than he was pushed. Maybe He's when 75 you push years over a 75 old. year old man. He's people, 75 years old. Older people die from breaking a hip when they step wrong. Like, they go down hard, dude. And, and <laughs> the, so if you didn't recognize OANN, that's One American News Network. This is what Trump was citing. One American News Network, just to give you a sense of what they are, they make Fox News look like adults. <laughs> like they're so, actually fair and balanced. Yeah. So... To, to give you to give you some reference, one of their main anchors is this guy named uh, Graham Ledger. His catchphrase is, even when I'm wrong, I'm right. Sounds like a really trustworthy guy, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is one of their lead anchors. That is who they are. That is who Trump is citing. He is defending the pushing of a 75-year-old man by police officers who then bled on the ground as cops walked by... Then he's defending it by claiming, oh, well, maybe he was just part of Antifa with no evidence. He cited no evidence. In fact, Gugino, he's actually someone who is involved in nonprofits with the Catholic worker movement. Yeah, Catholics, workers, they're all the same. Antifa. So, so that, that all should concern you. Yeah. Trump declaring Antifa as a terrorist organization when they're not an organization and then using that designation in order to declare without evidence that a 75-year-old man who was pushed by the police officers, attacked by the police officers, was just a terrorist and therefore had it coming, that should concern you. Yeah. Trump is a fascist. He has been a fascist from the beginning. We have to stop pretending that he's anything else. Yeah. He told and, us who he was in the 90s and he's showing us who he is now. Yeah. And and before, you know, I just to kind of close out this segment, you know, I I can already hear responses. Well, don't you think that's a little overblown like, you know, you know, Hitler was a fascist, like, you know, it's pretty different. Well, so there are a number of early warning signs of fascism. And I'm just going to tick through them real fast and associate each one with like a clear corollary in Trump rhetoric and Trump actions. So to start off, powerful and continuing nationalism, his campaign motto, America first, disdain for human rights, locking immigrant children in cages, identification of enemies as a unifying cause, Antifa, liberals, immigrants, Muslims. I literally yeah. don't have enough room to make the list. <laughs> Supremacy of the military. In 2020, he proposed adding $33 billion to the Defense Department's budget, making it 57% of the U.S. discretionary spending. Rampant sexism. How about grabbing by the pussy? Is that good enough for you? Control over mass media. Fox News, One America News Network, Sinclair Broadcasting. Um, another, another early warning sign, obsession with national security. How about the Muslim ban? How about, you know, 
painting immigrants as criminals and rapists. Religion and government intertwined. Well, he, he just gassed a bunch of protesters so that he could walk in front of a church and awkwardly hold up a Bible. Um, corporate power protected. Well, um, he and the Republicans just provided billions of dollars of unrestricted bailout money to corporations, and he removed the person that was supposed to oversee that. He's also overseeing the rollback of countless regulations. So there's a couple. And his um, treasury secretary is Steve frickin' Mnuchin. Yeah. <laughs> like. Exactly. Um, labor power suppressed. That's another one. Well, Trump's na- National Labor Relations Board has systematically weakened uh, labor standards and laws um, and weakened the ability of um, collective bargaining. Um, another sign. Obsession with crime and punishment. He just claimed to be the law and order president. Another sign. Rampant cronyism and corruption. I mean, I don't even... Do we have to? Like, <laughs> look at his cabinet. <laughs> They're full of his kids and his in-laws. And any, and look at his demands for loyalty, like any dissent in any way. The guy got impeached yeah. for using the powers of the presidency in order to get dirt on a political opponent in exchange for weapons to a foreign country. And that is the last one. Fraudulent elections. He's he like, yeah, he, he was impeached for that. And, you know... People like to pretend like the Mueller report didn't indicate potential conspiracy with Russia uh, to steal the 2016 election. It did not exonerate the president. And also, let's not forget that he is trying to prevent mail-in ballots. Mm -hmm. And to his own admission, it's because if people vote in large numbers, Republicans will never get elected again. Yep. Those are his words. Yeah. If if these signs and the corresponding actions don't worry you, you probably shouldn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for one of our happier segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? We come to you every week with Tips for Good in order to give you some simple ideas or simple actions or simple practices that you can incorporate into your own life in order to hopefully make the world a little bit of a better place because that's what we're all about here at the perspectrum making the world a better place so mike yeah yeah (laughs) what is our tips for good this week tip for good our tip for good this week is to make is is a tip related to making your activism sustainable so yeah one of the things that i am really worried about with all of the awesome activism that has been going on in support of um, black lives uh, over the past couple of weeks is that we have seen, maybe not to this level, maybe not with this success, but we've seen this kind of thing before. And what always happens every freaking time, and I am no exception, is that the moment passes, the news cycle cycles, and we lose focus and the activism kind of dies away and you know maybe or maybe it's just to a different issue that's what tends to happen with me i go i'll go from issue to issue um but so so one thing i wanted to do is make sure that that didn't happen this time and so i have put a 
reserved time on my calendar every night for 30 minutes to be the minimum amount of time that I have to dedicate every day to supporting black lives. And whether that is doing activism on social media, that could be um, donating, that could be learning, that could be having tough conversations. Like there are all kinds of ways to use that time, but it's specifically dedicated and it is every night. And it's only, it's, it's my amount of time is 30 minutes. That is the time that I think I can sustainably dedicate to this every night. And my hope is that it enables me. And if you, you know, take this as well, enables you to make this a habit that is sustainable and is part of your everyday life, because that is how we're going to make real change. Um, and so, yeah, so the tip for good is, you know, set aside some time. It doesn't have to be a lot of time, but some time uh, to make activism a habit. And I recommend activism in support of black lives. Don't forget, one of the things that a lot of the people that are opposed to the reforms that we're talking about, one of the things that they are hoping on, that they're, that they're banking on, is that eventually this will die down, nothing will have gotten done, and we can mm -hmm. all move on with our lives. Yep. And we cannot let that happen. Mm -hmm. And that's Tips for Good. All right, so now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the proposals of solutions, and we're going to analyze some of the main problems that we believe and a lot of uh, activists believe are leading to some of the institutional problems in our uh, in policing. Because it's really clear at this point that, you know, this is a complex situation with a lot of inputs and problems and causes and a really long history. And some of it is that, you know, the history of the police is like of our of our modern professional police is rooted in racism. And some of it is that, you know, you know, some cops are racist. But it's almost definitely not that all cops are evil, even though they belong to an agency that does a lot of it and it's almost definitely true that it's not just a few bad apples that it's a it's a bad system that desperately needs fixing yeah so here are some of the proposals by uh, campaign zero which i think these all are completely reasonable first off and broken windows policing which i will explain what that is after i finish this list uh more community oversight limiting the use of force independently investigating and prosecuting instances of police violence. If you'll, you're probably aware of this, but for those of you that aren't, uh, police officers are often prosecuted by the very people that they work with, mm -hmm. which creates a huge conflict of interest, which is why 99% of police officers that kill people don't end up getting charged or convicted. Mm -hmm. uh, number five, community representation. So more diverse policing, body cameras and uh, police through pe by penalty of law cannot turn off their body camera, uh, greater training, an end to for-profit policing, demilitarization, and more fair police union contracts. Mm -hmm. I think those are all completely reasonable proposals. I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the, some, some groups have pushed back on some of those as being too weak. 
But I think a number of those get after some of the root causes of these problems and are actually pretty huge structural reforms. Like, yes, a lot of police stations already require the use of body cameras, but the addition of a penalty for not wearing a body camera could really make a difference, you know, and like, you know, so so some of these are already kind of enacted in many parts of the United States, but giving those requirements teeth could be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what broken window policing is. So the idea was first created by this uh, criminologist named George Kelling. So the analogy of the broken window is the idea that if you walk by a broken window and nobody does anything about it, no one bats an eye about it, then you are doing the community a disservice. So even though that's a small problem, that's still a problem that needs to be addressed. So the idea is that if you make sure to crack down on some of the smaller instances of crime, or not necessarily crack down, but make sure that smaller crimes that are committed are still enforced, at least. Mm -hmm. Then you will prevent the bigger crimes. Now, yeah. Kelling's argument was basically that you need to allow police officers to have their own discretion. He wasn't necessarily, he actually has said that his theory is being misapplied right now, that the way it works today is basically cops crack down hard on people that are committing small crimes and it's ended and it ends up making things even worse. So yeah, into the, uh, the cycle of, yeah. um, imprisonment and it, you know, you, you get started on that cycle from something that's like a super tiny offense and all of a sudden you're going to be in the prison system for your whole life. Yeah. So Kelling's idea was actually that if you, make sure that police officers are enforcing the laws, even the, the minor offense laws, then you give them the discretion over how to deal with it. So what that means is, you know, say someone is skateboarding rec recklessly and causing, and could potentially cause harm to people through that. You don't slap cuffs on them and arrest them, but maybe you give them, maybe you talk to them. Maybe you say like, you can't do that. Uh, you sit down and make sure that you sit down and prevent them from doing it in the first place. You exercise discretion with it. Kind of, kind of how there's, uh, there are a lot of cops that when they pull people over, they end up letting some people off the hook. Some people, they give warnings. Some people they give tickets to, depending on whether or not they believe the person is going to be a more dangerous driver. The yeah. problem with that is, well, twofold. Number one, a lot of cops are not using their discretion. And number two, a lot of cops are using their discretion yeah. <laughs> and their discretion is filled with implicit biases. So yeah. for example, you might look at a, a cop who is implicitly biased, maybe not overtly racist, but implicitly biased, might see one person skateboarding and causing a ruckus, you know, like, like a kid, and then maybe give them a firm talking to. And, you know, the person is reasonable and they understand, but it's a white person. And then they continue walking down the street and they see a black person doing the same thing. Because of their implicit bias, they might use their discretion in order to determine that this person is more of a threat than the other person. 
And then they might arrest that person or they might mm -hmm. give them fines, which if that person is in poverty, if it's an impoverished area, then that just perpetuates a cycle of crime because we know based on what we've talked about on the pod before and based on all sociological and all uh, anthropological data that crime is always associated with poverty. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have some rich people that commit crimes, and that doesn't mean that you don't have some poor people that will never commit a crime in their life, but there is clear statistical data to indicate that if that, that crime-ridden areas are almost always areas of extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. Or Wall Street, one of the two. <laughs> that's, it. That's, that's, that's a fair point. <laughs> so we need to end this crackdown on small crimes with the idea that we're going to eventually prevent bigger crimes. Now, yeah. one of the arguments that is often used in favor of broken window policing is New York. So in New York, between 2010 and 2015, the police started implementing the practice of broken window policing. And they issued 1.8 million quality of life summons for offenses like disorderly contact, public urination, drinking, or possession of small amounts of marijuana. And during this time period, felony crime rates declined. So then there are a lot of people that point to this and say, well, there's your evidence. You crack down on the smaller crimes and the felony crimes actually end up declining. However, there's actually no evidence that the drop in felony crime rates was linked directly to the quality of life summons. Because mm. the, the amount of misdemeanor arrests, they also declined during that time. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, there was actually a time in 2014 and 2015 where New York officers staged a slowdown of broken window policing a slowdown of, um, of targeting low-level offenses. And they claimed, we're going to slow this down. This was to protest uh, proposals by the mayor, Mayor de Blasio, uh, who was trying to institute greater regulation of the police force. And they claimed that if we do this, that if we tone down broken window policing, that crime, that major crimes will go up. And it turns out they didn't. In fact, there was a slight decrease during this time um, that was about a, a six, a three to six percent decrease. So not only did it not make more major crimes, during the time period, it actually decreased a little bit. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's not to say that, like, as a community and society, we want to not have standards, right? Like we don't want people, you know, vandalizing things. Um, we don't want people to take actions that, you know, are disruptive of our communities, but like specifically instituting disproportionate punishments in order to deter small crimes in order to deter large crimes. That doesn't seem like a system of justice. That kind of seems like you're trying to proactively get people out of the population and, into prison so that you don't have to deal with them anymore. And another area which is a, 
a structural problem in policing that's been getting more and more attention is police increase in police militarization. And so militarization of the police is an increasing trend um, among community police organizations, um, which, which comes from an increase in military-type equipment, tactics, and attitudes, like taking a military approach to community policing. I think we should, we should emphasize more that police are not like the military. They are supposed to be our, you know, community watchdogs that are just out there to try to keep things running smoothly. They're supposed to be the oil in the gears, not the hammer. I don't know why you'd be using a hammer on gears, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I think, and this is a big part of like the defund the police movement and a lot of, of reforms. And so we wanted to spend some time specifically talking about it. So First, let's talk about the scale of police in the United States. So there are 18,000, 18,000 local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies in the United States. They employ 420,000 people, which compared to 320 million people is actually, you know, impressively few, even though there seem like there are tons of police officers. Um, But each year, law enforcement conducts over 10 million arrests resulting in more than 600,000 admissions to state and federal prisons. And they cost taxpayers around $126 billion a year in federal, state, and local police funding. It's really expensive. It's really big. And we are putting a lot of, making a lot of arrests and putting a lot of people in prison. So we've got a huge law enforcement system. And a huge problem is that that huge group of people is is specifically taking an adversarial approach to their to policing and not only do they have this adversarial approach which would be a problem even with someone you know in a badge with a nine millimeter but they're also taking advantage of federal uh, programs to obtain military surplus equipment so since the early 1990s the department of defense has a program called the 1033 program, which provides local law enforcement agencies with military-grade equipment. So the program, which actually was expanded under President Trump after President Obama attempted to limit its use, um, allows these local law enforcement agencies, community police, um, to receive extra excess Department of Defense equipment that would otherwise be destroyed because it's no longer useful for them. So. Over 8,000 law enforcement agencies have used this program. So there are 18,000 local and federal ones all together, and 8,000 of those have used this program to access more than $6 billion worth of military-grade equipment. So again, $126 billion is the size of the total policing budget in the United States, and $6 billion of those dollars goes towards this type of equipment, like night vision goggles, Police, uh, like machine guns, armored vehicles, bayonets, grenade launchers. It's like, it's, it's crazy. Grenade launchers are not designed to distinguish between who the bad guy is and who the good guy is. If mm-hmm. you launch a grenade launcher at someone, you're gonna, like, you're gonna do a lot of damage. Yeah. And you're probably gonna hurt civilians. Police officers should not have grenade launchers. Yeah, there's a reason we use these against enemy, like large groups of enemy combatants and not 
in our communities. So, and one funny study found that the use of like paramilitary style um, teams and equipment by law enforcement has increased by 1,400% since 1980. So in my mind, a huge question is whether this works, right? Like we're spending a ton of money. We are, you know, making, you know, over-militarizing our police. Is this car like leading to a corresponding reduction in crime and violent crime? So one thing that's really important to point out is that while this militarization has increased, um, measures of public trust and confidence in these law enforcement agencies has declined. This is a huge problem because one of your main tools as a community police officer is being able to leverage your position, authority, and influence to de-escalate situations and have them not turn violent. It's, it's all about trust. And a decline in trust undermines your ability to police without violence. And so... Public confidence and trust in law enforcement uh, as an institution has decreased since the early 2000s. And in a national survey in 2016, a majority, a majority of Americans stated that they believe the use of military equipment is going too far. And so then the question is, so now, now that we're like not as confident that our police officers are able to properly police, are they, is it leading to lower crime? So a, a number of studies indicate that it isn't. And one study specifically from 2017 found that every 10% increase in the value of military equipment received by a county results in 5.9 fewer crimes per 100,000 residents. So a 10% increase in spending on military-grade equipment and a 0.0059% decrease in, in um, crime. But if you look at specifically at military weapons... So not just like protective military protective equipment, but weapons specifically. The study found that these have almost no impact or deterrent on crime at all. And multiple studies indicate that the more militarized a police force, the higher levels of force against, against citizenry, which makes sense. You give someone toys, you don't tell them how to use them, and they're going to you know mess it up. And so like we're spending tons of money in doing the exact opposite of what we'd want. No deterrent of crime in any significant way, increase in police violence, and a decrease in public trust and confidence in the police. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Like I, I've, I literally have no idea why this exists. Oh, and let's not forget, you know, these, are current, these equipment are currently being used to shut down peaceful protests and you know, increased in adversarial police tactics disproportionately lead to the violent killing of African-Americans. So maybe defund the police? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about defund the police. Let's talk about what that means because there are a lot of straw men mm-hmm. surrounding the idea of to what be fair, defund the police means. When you say defund the police, you're kind of giving the straw man away. Like you're like... <laughs> Yeah, you're making your own e- straw man. To an extent, but if you're intellectually honest enough to look into what the actual policy is, then you would see, oh, okay, so they're not saying abolish law enforcement, they're saying blank. So let, let's let's get that out of the way real quick. So 
whereas there, while there are some people that might say defund the police with the intention of abolishing the system, the entire system of policing, when most people say it, and I'm going to specifically cite Black Lives Matter co-founder Elisa Garza, who said, quote, when we're talking about defunding the police, what we're saying is invest in the resources that our communities need. So basically, she's saying what she's saying is that defunding the police doesn't mean that you're abolishing the police. It means that you're reallocating a significant amount of that money, which Michael was talking about, a lot of which goes towards giving them military-grade weaponry, and reallocating that to social programs that reduce poverty and thus reduce crime. Now, as we've talked about repeatedly on this podcast, if you want to fight crime, what you need to fight is poverty because poverty leads to more crime. So if we are creating more initiatives that allow for better housing, employment, and social welfare in these communities that are poverty-stricken, in order to fight the effects of redlining, which is still very prevalent in today's society, if we want to do that, then the proposal is take some of the funds from the police, scale back law enforcement, and put some of those funds towards social programs. I personally do agree with the main message of this. So we need to be clear about what police reform looks like and what it means to defund the police and to what extent we are defunding the police. So John Oliver actually had a really good segment uh, earlier this week in which he was talking about how police in this country are kind of in some ways given impossible jobs because they're supposed to be everything at once. They're supposed to be every type of specialist at once. And I was, I was talking to my wife earlier today, and we were talking about how an ideal system would be more specialization in law enforcement. So completely change the way we structure law enforcement so that you're not always calling the same person for every situation. Obviously, you have an emergency line mm -hmm. that sends over people in a case of emergency. But what if it's like... Uh, what if there's someone who's having some type of mental health issue? You, mm -hmm. There should be a division of people that specialize in that. Uh, divisions that specialize in responding to sex crimes. There should be specific divisions that are responsible primarily for responding to drug use. You know, mm -hmm. addiction counselors, things like that. So when you call for help, people showing up with a gun is not always what you need. So... I think that calls to completely reform the police and turn them into more specialized units that don't always focus on the act of policing, but instead focus on community building and solving actual problems as they arise because that's what they're specialized to do. That if we're talking about defunding the police as we know it today and putting it towards social programs, but also to a system of law enforcement like that, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, it seems to me like police would be the first group out there talking about defunding. I mean, they've yeah. literally, you know, come out 
publicly, many, many outspoken police officers have said, you are relying on us too much. You are asking too much. You are giving us too many responsibilities and too few resources. So, the, yeah, so the truth is that, like, we are asking too much. Like, it's crazy to me that we spread police officers as thin as they do. If your neighbor's too loud, you call the police. Weird smell coming from upstairs, better call the police. Mental health issue, police. Have a kid in school who's acting up. Police are literally in school. In schools. Like, helping or trying to help kids who are, you know, acting up with misconduct or whatever. What used to be detention is now a confrontation with the police. And like drug overdose addiction, which is increasingly a common problem, very highly linked to mental health, and the police respond. And there's a reason why when the police respond, they, res they respond by arresting someone or handcuffing someone or harming someone. Like, that's what they're trained to do. They're, they're trained to respond to crime, not all these other crazy things. And so it's like, it's so clear that what we need and what the police need is a refinement of their jobs. And, and it's such a shame that people are so attached to their budgets and their military toys that, you know, that's getting clouded by the fact that the police and society would be better off. And also, I feel like as a society, we need to take a different view of what policing is supposed to represent. Mm -hmm. Policing is supposed to represent the last resort of a society that has failed to prevent a crime from happening. That's an excellent point, yeah. So, I'll say it again, like I've said it before, crime is associated with poverty. When you have higher impoverished areas, you have higher crime rates. Mm -hmm. And we have higher impoverished areas because we're not willing to take the steps necessary in order to actually fight poverty. Yeah. We are choosing poverty. We're choosing crime. Exactly. So police officers, they're supposed to be there after society has done everything they could, they possibly could in order to prevent crime. They're supposed to be there in case all that we have done doesn't end up working, doesn't end up preventing the crime in the first place. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be that last line of defense. But they have become what we rely on primarily mm -hmm. to make up for the fact that we have a system that creates all of these situations in which people feel the life of pr crime is the only thing that they can turn to. Yeah. So yeah. by defunding the police, we are reallocating money to go towards those very social programs that prevent the need of someone with a gun to show up to prevent a crime in the first place. Yeah. That is what the movement is about. That is what the hashtag is about. That is what the demand is about. Mm -hmm. So don't try to straw man that as we don't want any law enforcement. We don't want people. We don't want there to be anybody that you can call if someone's breaking into your house. That's yeah. not what it's about. That's a straw man. Yeah. We're not trying to break down society. We're trying to make society work for us. You know, we don't, we, we literally don't want a violent society. That's the whole goal. goal. 
So why would you, as a first line of defense, have someone show up with a firearm and handcuffs and training to use them as your, as like your first option? Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so clear when you lay it out this way that it's the right way to go, but it's almost like similar to cash bail, which we talked about last week. It's like something that's so common, something that's, you know, on our TVs and in our news and our first resort when something bad happens. And it's almost like it's, it's, you don't notice it until it's pointed out to you, like so many problems with our society. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Asshat of, of the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is Missouri Senator Tom Cotton. Oh, sweet. I, I seem to remember him uh, having written something in the New York Times. Is that what this is about? Yeah, actually, this that's exactly what this is about. I, it, and I think this might actually be the second time that he's been our asshat. Oh, man. I, I think that's the first time. No. I think we've only had a couple honorees on more than once, which is pretty amazing. Like, of yeah. all the billions of people out there, yeah. a couple people really so, stand out. So, and all he had to do was write an article in which he went full-on fascist. Hmm. And, yeah, so, that's awesome. A lot of you have probably already heard about this, and a, prob- a lot of you have probably already anticipated that he would be our asshat this week. So Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which he called for, quote, an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain, and ultimately deter lawbreakers. And to do that, he said, and this is actually the title of the op-ed, Send in the Troops. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just go ahead and get out in front of these riots, um, and just you know militarize our streets. It's awesome. Again, what are the implications of this? Even if even if we are taking him at his word, which I don't, that he wants to call in the military specifically against the people that are rioting, the people that are busting windows and stuff. The military's job is not to maintain order; it is to kill people. Mm-hmm. That is what they do. Law enforcement and National Guard, that's different. You know, law enforcement and National Guard, they are trained to maintain order at home. The military, the army, is not. Mm -hmm. So what he is saying, when he is saying an overwhelming demonstration of force, he's basically saying, go in there and kill a bunch of people. Kill your own civilians. It should not be... Within the Overton window, it should not be within the window of acceptable discourse in this country to call in the military on your yeah. own civilians. Yeah. It God, my voice is cracking. I can't in even. The, in the opinion section of the New York Times, like, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like, and he was heavily criticized for this, and so was the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Like, Which and is his, his, good. Yeah. And his, it, well, his response to this was, oh, well, they're all a bunch of leftists and they're, yeah. they're violating my free speech. Yeah. It's like, mother, f- you <laughs> are calling, <laughs> you were telling, <laughs> you were saying call in the troops on yeah. protesters. Don't pretend that you care about <laughs> freedom of speech. Those liberal protesters with their rights, those snowflakes. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 
And he's like, oh, well, the people don't want to hear different opinions from the New York Times. Like, that's it. All the editors, they're a bunch of leftist snowflakes. <laughs> different okay. read <laughs> advocating uh, for murder. Yeah. So I, my, <laughs> my, my favorite part is that, like, he, you know, purports to try to, like, see through you know all of the complexity of this issue and and importantly straight through the experience of african americans in this country um and and says but the rioting has nothing to do with george floyd whose bereaved relatives have condemned violence just pause here maybe that's true but this is not just about george floyd it's about a system of systemic racism, which disproportionately murders black people. Yeah. And he goes on to say, on the contrary, nihilist criminals are simply out for loot and the thrill of destruction with cadres of left-wing radicals like Antifa infiltrating protest marches to exploit for Floyd's death for their own anarchic purposes. Classic, classic racist white dude. It's definitely not about race. These people are just out there trying to be criminals. Yeah. It's just like, dude. And also, are there you is zero me? evidence yeah. that Antifa is specifically trying to like stir up things for their own uh, devious plan. For one yeah. thing, as we said earlier, they're not a centralized group. There's in no the first plan. Place. <laughs> <laughs> and and also, God. like, there's also similarly zero evidence for the claim that these people are are nihilists. I don't know yeah. where he gets that. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, in a lot of ways, I consider myself a free speech absolutist. If you want to advocate for your own fascist crap, you can do that. But like the, the whole, the whole thing of the New York times who has condemned this and has said that it's a mistake to have printed it because it doesn't meet their standards the the whole argument of that's just a bunch of snowflakes being triggered look when the new york times starts publishing marxists when they start publishing actual socialists when they start publishing actual anarchists then maybe we can talk about who's picking and choosing what ideology they're representing but mm -hmm. when they decide to feature an overt fascist who is advocating for something that should not be within the acceptable window of discussion in this country, should not be within the Overton window, using the military to show an overwhelming display of force on your own people. Like, yeah, you can't claim that it's about here in multiple perspectives. Like, Also, the right of point. free speech is not the right to be published in a national newspaper. Exactly. That's why we have anonymous blogs. Yeah. <laughs> and and you're a senator. Like Yeah. Make a video on your own like on your own Facebook or your own YouTube or whatever and share that or like you aren't entitled to the op-ed section of the New York Times. So anyway, congratulations to Tommy Cottonhead. Go for screw being, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> for Sorry. being our asshat ass of, of the, the week. week. Our last segment is going to be a very quick segment because this has been a very long 
podcast so far. We spent a lot of time talking about our first two segments, which rightly so. So I just want to briefly discuss a story that I think has slipped through the cracks. I We've been paying so much attention to COVID-19 and racial violence, and we should. But we also can't forget what is happening in the background. So a report recently came out that showed that U.S. bombings in Afghanistan have hit an annual record in, in 2019 of 7,423. And furthermore, there was a great piece of investigative journalism from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism um, and also uh, alongside Al Jazeera in order to look more into who are we actually bombing? Who is actually being killed? What they found was extremely disturbing. So one of the problem with the way we gather data on who we're actually killing over there is that the U.S. government doesn't always look too much into it. The U.S. government often does not spend any resources trying to determine how much collateral damage happened in their attacks. So Al Jazeera, in collaboration with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, put together a sample of 10 airstrikes carried out by the U.S. military and their Afghan allies on family compounds in the last two years. So this 10 airstrikes. In these 10 airstrikes, and keep in mind, this is a sample. In these 10 airstrikes, 115 people were killed and 70 of them were children. That is 60% children. Now remember, we've had over 7,400 airstrikes in just this last year. Those are, the, those are the statistics specifically from a sample of 10 of those airstrikes. Imagine how many people we're killing, how many innocent people we are killing, how many innocent children the United States military, the United States airstrikes are killing. This is something that we can't ignore. And I think it kind of goes along with one of the themes that we've been talking about today, which is basically the idea that just because the United States does it with some measure of authority doesn't mean that it's right. Like if a police kills some, if a police officer kills someone, just because they're a police officer working for the U.S. government, it doesn't mean that they're good. It doesn't mean that they're justified. Calling the military on your civilians just because we're the ones that are doing it, it doesn't make it right. And just because we are the ones that are killing civilians, killing children, 60% children, that doesn't make it right. And... There's a word that is used for attacks on a civilian population in order to make a political point. And you know what that word is? Terrorist. In the name of fighting terrorism, we are committing terrorism. <laughs>
And with that, uh, it is time for our last short segment, um, Highlights. So, Nathan, what is your highlight this week? My highlight is that I feel like I've finally gotten a hand, uh, gotten a handle on what I need to be doing this summer, like how I need mm. to be working. So I've been, I'm, I'm teaching online courses. I'm also taking this uh, hybrid learning course so that I can be certified to teach hybrid classes. And I was feeling really stressed about that yesterday. Um, but I feel like I finally got a handle on it, and I finally have a plan for how I'm going to get through the rest of the summer. Nice. So I don't know. It just it just felt good. That's great. That's awesome. What about you, Michael? Uh, my highlight, uh, I think, is well. I'm really looking forward to this coming weekend. Um, I've been wanting to go camping pretty much since the coronavirus pandemic happened because I was like, there is no better socially distant activity. You can literally stay away from everyone and enjoy yourself. Um, and this weekend, I'm finally getting out to camp um, for a couple of days. And it's going to be really fun. I think it's going to be a nice escape. Good time with Bree. Um, yeah, and we'll be able to, we'll be camping near a beach, so we'll be able to swim a bit. So it's going to be really nice. And with that, thanks so much for listening to The Perspectrum. And you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.